good morning. Hope you're having a great day so far. We're looking forward to a good day and rest of the rest of it. Hey, do not miss church next week because of time change. Okay, go to bed, spring forward, spring out of bed, and get here. Well, you don't want to miss Pastor Kevin. We'll be back next week, and and uh, we'll look forward to a good day. Speaking of spring, we're only two weeks away. That's pretty good news, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, three weeks away from Easter. And we're looking forward to a great Sunday that day. We want you to be here. Uh, actually, we have a service on Saturday night like we've been doing, and three services on Sunday as normal. So uh, plan on being here, inviting someone to come and be a part of that day with us. We've been talking about the historical Jesus. And, uh, you know, sometimes today skeptics will, will throw out sort of a pseudo-intellectual challenge to us about who Jesus really was, what he was really all about, what he was really like. And it's thrown out there to us as Christians as if we, can't, we don't have an answer. That's the way they assume that no one can really know. When in reality, if you read the Gospels, it becomes very clear. You realize that from the beginning to the end of his ministry, he was completely focused, focused on accomplishing one thing, and you see it clearly, even when he was 12 years old in the temple, you know, and Mary and Joseph, remember, they were looking for him. And, and, and he said to them in Luke 2, 49, why is it that you're looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Or as it says literally in the Greek there, in the affairs of my father, that's what he was all about. Always about accomplishing what his father had sent him to do. And what the father sent him to do, he told us in John 3, 17, God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The world, that's the job. And he got that job done, right? That's why on the cross, he cried out in John 19, it is finished. He got the job done from beginning to end. He was a focus on accomplishing it. In, in fact, at one point, he tells three parables that, that point to that purpose that he had been given, and they're all about what the historical Jesus was all about. In Luke 15, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. He tells the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Those stories are all focused on Jesus. And, and, and you might ask, well, why would he say, tell three stories? Why would he tell three parables that essentially tell the same thing? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, because he is, he's talking about his mission in life and he's passionate about what he's doing. So, so just like we do today, if, if we're involved in something that we're passionate about, whether it's our job or our families or our hobby or whatever it is, we tend to talk about those things. And, and so Jesus, very passionate about the, the role he's been given, talks about it and he, and he gives multiple examples and then there are some differences in the stories, and those differences also help to point, I think, to a complete picture of what Jesus did for us. And, and to me, it's very cool to see. Let's take a look at it. He actually tells these parables in response to an accusation that's thrown at him. In verse 1, it says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So there's the accusation that he eats with sinners. Actually, at that time, that was a pretty serious charge. He, he's got some people meeting with him. He talks about him here as his tax collectors. We know they were not popular people at that time. They were, they were people, usually Jewish men, who had bought the right to be these tax collectors 
from, from the Roman Empire. And, and so they purchased that right because it was a way for them to make a lot of money. And so the whole plan was just full of abuses. And because of that, they were despised by their own people, not only because they were viewed as unpatriotic and dishonest and greedy, but also because their job made them ritually unclean. So they were viewed as alienated from God. And these are the guys that, are, that wanted to be near Jesus to listen to him, as well as this other group who the, past, the Pharisees call sinners. Now, they're not exactly using that word the way we use it today. You know, we use it in sort of a general sense in that we're all sinners. But they used it for a particular class of people who were considered especially immoral. And, and sometimes it was because of what they did for a living, people that, you know, no respectable Jew would have anything to do with. Sometimes it would be people with certain diseases or disabilities that they that many would take as a sign that they had committed some great sin. They were physically and morally unapproachable. So these were the people that were coming near Jesus. And the Pharisees, they make the assumption that if Jesus can associate with them, then he must be one of them. So here's a, here's a crowd considered to be lowlifes all gathered around Jesus listening to him and the Pharisees are griping. What really bothered them was that not only was Jesus spending time with them, but these people were inviting Jesus home to dinner and he was going home with them. And that to them was just unacceptable. They're in, in complete horror, these Pharisees and the scribes said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This man, it's, they, they are so disgusted by it, they can't even speak his name. I got to tell you, though, that's actually a great statement, isn't it? I mean, I'm not sure there's a more accurate statement about Jesus, ironically, than the one the Pharisees make here. They had no idea the truth of their statement. Jesus receives sinners. Think about how that truth has impacted your life if you're a believer. Sometimes, you know, we get all complicated about what we believe and we get all into the details and all down in this, you know, and it, but it all just comes down to this, doesn't it? A great professor from Princeton Seminary, Dr. Archibald Alexander, was a professor there of theology for 40 years back in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And on his deathbed, he, he told one of his friends, he said, all of my theology is reduced to this narrow compass. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It all boils down to that. That simple, profound truth that never changed. You want to know about the historical Jesus? That's it. We know what he was about, and we know that that's it. Amazingly, that God wanted me, that God wanted you. That truth should never grow old to us. That truth should never become dull to us. That's that's a truth that can challenge us every day of our lives. Amazingly, God wanted us. He longed for us. The thought should, should blow us away. It should drive us to giving thanks and to worshiping him. So in response to the Pharisees' accusations, Jesus, because that's what he is all about, tells these three parables, simple stories that are very similar in many ways, but I think also we learn from the differences. First of all, the lost sheep. In verse 3, it says, so he told them this parable saying, 
What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So he starts with the sheep, 99, 100 of them, but one of them has wandered away. You know, I don't know a lot about sheep. But we've all heard that sheep are not the brightest animals around, right? And I've also heard that Sheep are a little different than some animals in that they won't deliberately run away. Okay, um, you know, like a, sometimes a dog, if a dog's been, you know, fenced up or chained up, you know, he gets loose, what's he going to do? He's going to take off, right? Um, a cat, I don't know about cats. <laughs> There's a, well, there, there are a lot of animals that if they have the chance, they're going to run away. Not a sheep, evidently. They, they wander off. They don't, they don't mean to. They just drift away without realizing it. You can see that happening, can't you? You know, the sheep's with the flock. Everything's good. You know, nothing bad happening. And, and, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and, and then he sees some grass a few steps away. So he goes for the grass. You know, and, and, just, and, and he's just living for the moment. And there's, oh, there's some more grass. And he goes over for that grass. And, and, and he keeps moving away until he realizes suddenly he looks up and the rest of the flock is gone. They're nowhere in sight. He doesn't know what to do. And so he's running around. He can't hide. He, know what to, he doesn't know about hiding. He's just running in circles, calling out for the other sheep. But he has nowhere to go. And in that moment, that sheep is completely vulnerable to any other animal that's out there. That's the picture Jesus gives of us. That's the way we were. That's why Isaiah, back in the Old Testament, talked about all of us like sheep have gone astray. That was us. Before we came to Christ, we were living for the moment. We didn't intend to be lost. We didn't intend to waste our lives. We didn't intend to wander off into something dangerous and destructive, but little by little, Focusing only on the moment, we found ourselves out in the wilderness. We woke up and realized, oh man, my life's empty. My, my heart's not free like I'd like. It's heavy with guilt. And we weren't sure how it all happened, but we wanted something else. So that whole thing of, of the sheep typifies us, headed for destruction, unaware of the danger we're in. George Orwell wrote an essay one time about a, about a wasp a wasp that landed on his plate with his food in it. And he said that wasp was, he said, sucking on my, sucking jam on my plate. And I cut him in half. <laughs> he said the wasp, he paid no attention, merely went on with his meal <laughs> with a tiny stream of jam trickling out of his severed esophagus. <laughs> Only when he tried to fly away did he grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to him? That's like us. We're like the wasp. We're severed, but completely unaware, continuing to consume. But that's what we were before Christ. But then we came to that moment where we came to a realization of our, of, of our terrible condition. That's the story Jesus tells here. And, and then he turns to those who are listening and says, well, what about you guys? 
you had you had a hundred sheep, one of them disappears, what do you do? You're gonna go searching for them. And the search begins, and, and he goes after that one which is lost until he finds it, because he sees value in it. Don't know if you heard the story about the, the cellist Yo-Yo Ma, who one day was traveling through New York City heading for a motel. He's in a taxi, and he, he gets to the motel, gets out, forgets the fact that his cello was in the trunk. A cello that was handcrafted in Vienna in 1733 and is worth two and a half million dollars. And he gets out and leaves it and then at some point realizes that his cello is still in the trunk of that car. And, and the search began. And they searched all day long to find that cello. Finally found the taxi parked in a garage in Queens with his two and a half million dollar cello and it's still in the trunk. He searched all day. Why? Because of the value of that instrument. God, through his son, Jesus Christ, searched for us and kept on searching until he found us. Jesus tells us here as he paints this picture that he wouldn't quit on the search. We're so greatly loved by Christ that he kept searching till he found us. What kind of love is that? That's what he was all about the historical Jesus. He went to the next story of the lost coin in verse eight and says there, oh, well, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin which I have lost. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here it is, this lady's lost a coin. We think nothing about that. You know, we have piles of coins everywhere. We got them on our dresser. We got a you know, jar full of them. We don't stop and pick up a coin if somebody loses it. You know, we, we, just, we, just, we wouldn't think anything about it. But if we only had 10 coins, if that was our entire life savings and we lost one of them, that'd be a different story, right? That's sort of catastrophic. You might think that this story would be even more intense, this search that's gonna go on, because instead of one out of 100, like the sheep, we've now got one out of 10. One writer puts a different light on it, and I, I saw this, this, he said this coin wasn't a typical coin. It was sort of a crown jewel. Listen to how he puts it. He said, in Palestine, the mark of a married woman was a headdress, made of tin coins linked together by a chain. For years, maybe a girl would scrape and save to amass her tin coins for the headdress, for the headdress was almost equivalent to her ready, of her wedding ring. When she had it, it was, no, it was so much hers that it could not even be taken from her for debt. It may well be that it was one of these coins that the woman in the parable lost, and she searched for it as any woman would search if she had lost her marriage ring. I mean, imagine losing your engagement ring. So what he's saying here is when a woman got married, she took this money that she had accumulated throughout her life and sewed it into this headdress that she wore on her wedding day. So these 10 coins were of incredible value to her and significance as a woman. They symbolized her dowry. They represented not just the value of the money, but all she had to contribute to the marriage. Either way, whether because she's poor and all she has is 10 coins or because 
she has this added value of being part of this wedding day headdress. This is a huge loss to her. But think about the coin for just a second. Unlike the sheep, you know, who doesn't have the, even this coin doesn't even have the potential to recognize the fact that it's lost. No, it's an inanimate object. It's just laying there. It, it's, it isn't in danger like the sheep. Nothing's going to happen to it. It's not going to get all frightened because it's lost. It's completely unable to respond, which just shows us another angle on our being lost and how Jesus went after us. Because in this story, we're the coin. We're the inanimate object. Spiritually, we were just laying there, unable to move, incapable of doing anything. He's stressing that our salvation was not our initiative. That while Jesus saw value in us, there was nothing that we did to get that value. We're incapable of doing anything. He had to find us or else we didn't have a chance. It was his initiative. It was interesting, you know, with the, with the sheep, that Jesus gave us this familiar uh, imagery of himself as a shepherd. You know, we tend to think of, of that picture in sort of a picturesque way. You know, shepherd with his staff and green pastures and brook and all that, that, that scene. Well, here's one that's completely different, not so picturesque. Jesus using the imagery of himself as a peasant housewife. The shepherd we get, we get the reason it's used. You know, we, we've heard sermons about that. We've read books on it. If you go to the third parable with the father and the son, we get that. We've heard sermons on that. And there's reasons that was used. What's the reason a peasant woman is used? I mean, if there's a reason we have the image of, of a shepherd and the image of a father, there must be a reason for the image of a peasant woman. probably the last thing that comes to your mind if you think about the imagery of Jesus as a peasant housewife so why use this we we know in that culture it's not like women were thought highly of at that time devout Jewish men you've probably heard this and they prayed three times a day thanking God that they not been born a slave a gentile or a woman so why what was Jesus why was he giving us this picture I think maybe because a peasant housewife had so little they didn't have wealth. They didn't have position. You know, all the things that Jesus willingly gave up for us. You know, remember Philippians 2 where Jesus was equal with the Father, and he, but it wasn't something that he held on to. He let go of that. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He became a man like us. He did all that. He emptied himself. It's obvious just how desperate she was to find this coin, what length she would take, how finally the coin would consume her. It, it tells us so just how far Jesus would go and how much Jesus would do to find us. She searched carefully, diligently, every nook and cranny in the house. She lights a lamp. Why? Because the poor didn't have windows in their homes. She lights a lamp so she can see. And she starts sweeping. In those days, they covered their floors with straw because it was just a, a dirt floor and they wanted to soften it up a little bit. So uh, losing a coin is literally like finding a needle in a haystack. And she's searching, searching, the dust is flying until she finds the coin. And this peasant woman becomes the unexpected hero because she didn't give up. 
In the same way the Pharisees and scribes wouldn't have expected a woman to be the hero of the story, they also didn't expect Jesus to be the savior of men. But he doesn't just save us. It's not like when we find a coin in the parking lot. No, he cherishes us like a lady does her engagement ring. We're his greatest treasure. But it took his search, his initiative, going as far as he did for us. And then finally, we've got the lost son. The lost son is different than the sheep who was just sort of ignorant, different than the coin which was unable to do anything. The son is bold and rude, especially to his father. He's rebellious. Verse 11 says, and, and he said, Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. So this gives us another angle on what it means to be lost. The sheep was ignorant. He wandered away, not aware. The coin was unable, an inanimate object that wasn't able to respond. With the son, it's rebellion, deliberate deliberately turning away. This guy is convinced that somehow his parents are holding him back from having a really good time in life. You know, it's hard to imagine a teenager thinking his parents are keeping him from having fun. He wanted his freedom. He thought his freedom would actually be better than the, than the love and advice he's constantly receiving from his father at home. So he demands, give me my share of the estate. The law would have allowed him to have a third of the estate, but he couldn't get it actually. He wasn't supposed to get it until after his father died. He's not willing to wait. So he demands, right now, I want my part. So the father gave him what he wanted. He divided his wealth among them. And the son goes off to a distant country, so far, so, as far away as he could get. And he, and he finally had everything he always wanted to get away from the father, to have everything he longed to get, to be in charge of his life, to live where there are no rules and no regulations, to party, to have complete freedom. But then he wasted all he'd been given. And famine comes. And he's in trouble at that point. He, there's no resources and he ends up feeding pigs if you read through the rest of the story well, well I, you know things are not going good especially for a Jewish man to feed pigs what a terrible situation this isn't how he pictured life at all he thought he'd have a good job and good food and he'd live the high life but now all the glitter is gone, gone he's not just feeding the pigs he's actually hungry so hungry he's willing to eat with them he's at the lowest point possible that is where we were at spiritually before coming to Christ. We were spiritually eating with the pigs. All caused by our own rebellion. But then the story takes a turn from the sheep and the coin. With the sheep, the shepherd goes on a search he leaves the 99, goes after the one. With the coin, the woman goes on a search, sweeping and searching. A big deal is made in those two parables about the search. You would think the search might be even more intense here. I mean, you went from one in 99 to one in 10. Here it's one in two. And it's not just a sheep or a coin. It's a son, a lost son. But there's no search. Why? 
Well, I think you see the, the father here, he's not going to rescue his son against the son's will. He'll let him go until he has discovered for himself that the life he's choosing isn't all that. The answer for the lost son is completely different. Look at verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he comes to his senses and he begins to think about where he's at and where he could be and how things could be at home. And he comes to the conclusion that he, he, for, when he made that demand for his own way, he was wrong. Boy, that's important, isn't it? That's what happened for every one of us who, who became believers. We came to a point where we realized we're wrong. The being lost is, is not something we can make excuses for. We were guilty. We were rebels. And we needed to turn from our sin and do what the Bible calls repent. Repentance involving that deep sense of how horribly offensive our lives are to God and that we have no rights before him at all. So again, we see this facet of our salvation in these stories. God searched for us in the first two stories and, and, and being his, completely his initiative. And then with the lost son, we come to our senses and the circumstances we find ourselves in and we turn and go home. It's really showing both sides of an old argument. You know, some people focus solely, when we talk about salvation, they want to talk all, all about the sovereignty of God in that. Some people... They want to talk on the other side. It's about it being all in our hands and the decision that we make. Jesus clearly shows us both sides in these stories, the choice and seeking by Jesus that our salvation is his initiative. And then he shows us the choice that we make, that at some point we came to our senses to go home and enjoy the blessings of being at home. The son goes home. He can't wait to get there. In all these stories, though, there's one part we haven't talked about. In all, there's, in all of them, there's a celebration. It's very similar, again, but there are differences. When the sheep was found, he's placed on the shepherd's soldiers, soldiers, shoulders because he's out of strength. And the shepherd is rejoicing. Why? Because he loved the sheep. And so what did he do? He threw a party. He invited his friends over this celebration. And Jesus compares it to the celebration that's going on in heaven. I mean, talk about value in God's eyes. This is what makes heaven celebrate because God sets value on lost men and women. They are not worthless in his sight. They're not written off as neglected. They are of, of unspeakable value to God. They carry his own mark. And even though it, it's marred and, and defiled by sin, he longs to find them and reach them and restore them. That's what Jesus was all about. Think about the expense for the shepherd as he throws this celebration banquet. He's, there's food involved, right? Probably. Doesn't tell us in the text, but no doubt when the, when the Jewish people got together, they threw a feast. He, he, through a feast, he probably killed a number of animals to feed his friends. Why? Because he's celebrating this one animal that he's found. There's a big price paid, just like there was a huge price paid for us. 
And then there's the coin, the housewife finding her coin. She feels good. So her first thought is to call her friends and neighbors and celebrate. She invites, actually the Greek is all in the feminine here. She invites all of her lady friends as, as she celebrates. Maybe because they'd understand how much this meant to her where the men you know, wouldn't get it. And, and, and so it says there in the same way in verse 10, I, I tell you there's joy in the presence of the angel of God over one sinner who repents. Joy in the presence of the angels and people talk about, well, that the angels are celebrating. Well, that may be true, but that's not completely what's going on here. The main point is this. What Jesus is saying here is that he, Jesus, who lives in the presence of the angels and seeks sinners and rejoices over them is the one who's celebrating. He's the one throwing the party. But we notice, again, her friends are there, so maybe the angels are celebrating too and, and believers that are already there. Jesus not only receives sinners, he celebrates their coming to him. Must have been some kind of celebration, don't you think, in heaven, the day he found you? What was that like? You ever think about that? The day you came to Christ, Jesus in heaven celebrating your coming to him. The angels celebrating with him. Believers that are celebrating with him. What was that like? And then the celebration for the son. We could, if we went back and read through the verses, you'd see there's an amazing story. I'm, I'm going to skip it for now, but it's obvious that, that while the father was searching wasn't searching. He, he never lost interest in the son. He, he must have been looking down that road, maybe like he had done every day since his son had left. And, and, you, and if you, you look at the reaction that he gets, that he gives to his son when he comes, there's not the slightest hint of a, of a lecture or ridicule. There's no guilt trip. There's no talk of the pain that the son caused or the debt he owed. There's only joy that the son has come home. I sort of picture this, I, I don't know, but I sort of picture it happening at sunset. And it, the sun's coming over a hill and his, he's silhouetted against the sky. And, and, and the father, you know, he's looking and at first he sees just a form coming and it's still a long way off, and, 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 but the sun's getting closer and he recognizes the walk, but, it, but it, you know, could it be, but it, it doesn't look like his son. He's, he's dirty and he's wearing rags and he's skin and bones. But he's keeping watching. He's watching with some spark of hope. And then he knows, that's my son. And he runs. The father, not a young guy anymore. He's got two grown sons. And we know they, they weren't supposed to run in that culture as older men. That was considered, you know, un, undignified. But nothing's stopping him at this point. He's going to run to the son. And he runs and he throws his arms around his son's neck and he kisses him. And all this before the son even has a chance to say a word. And when he does speak, he says, Father, I've sinned. And that's what the son planned on saying. But he also planned on saying, make me as one of your hired men. The father never gives him a chance to say that. He says, bring the robe, the best robe, a status symbol for noblemen. Bring him a ring, probably a signet ring, a sign of authority. Bring him his sandals because he's not a slave. He's my son. Bring the, kill the fattened calf, that calf that had been fed and waiting for that special moment where important guests would come. And when the son made the decision to come home, 
The father celebrates and when we made the decision to come home, ragged and dirty and skin and bones, and we humbly came home, it was like the, for each of us, Jesus was constantly watching down the road. And when he saw us coming, he ran. He ran to us. Nothing could keep him from us. He threw his arms around us. He kissed us and he gave us the very best of everything we needed. We couldn't ask for more. Aren't you glad you're brought into his family? You know, I read these stories and I think there's two basic responses that immediately kind of my mind. First of all, gratitude. Amazed by his love for us. We should be so thankful that it should cause us to worship him. And also sharing. Sharing because Jesus cared so much for us that we should want to share that love with others. We should want to tell them a story of his love for them. Remember, remember Matthew, Jesus and Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector like the people in this chapter. And he'd heard Jesus speak. He knew who Jesus was, didn't really know him. And one day Jesus is standing there in front of Matthew at his table. And Matthew's got all this money that he's been collecting and he lived his life for. And Jesus says to him, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew gets up and leaves all that money, everything that he had lived his life for. At that moment, he gets up and he follows Jesus. And you know what the next thing he does? Is he, he, he throws a party, invites all his tax collector friends, and asks Jesus, would you come and be there with us? And Jesus goes, you know what? Matthew wanted his friends to know Christ. That's the natural reaction when you've been loved like we've been loved. We have a message that's worth sharing. Late in Mark Twain's life, he wrote, there is no God, no universe, no human race, no earthly life, no heaven, no hell. It's all a dream, a grotesque, foolish dream. Nothing exists but you, and you are but a thought, a vagrant thought, a useless thought, a homeless thought, wandering forlorn among the empty eternities. Wow, depressing. Our message is the opposite of Mark Twain's. Our message that was given to us tells us that we are... We were lost, but now we've been found. That our God is real, and that we are not homeless, wandering vagrants, but people with a home, the Father's home, where we are welcomed, embraced, and even celebrated. The Father's house that's become our house, our eternal home. That's what we want for you if you've not trusted Christ, to know that your sin is forgiven, to know that your eternal destiny is set, to know that you have a relationship with God through his son, the historical Jesus, who you can know and you can know all about him because he's the shepherd searching for the sheep. He's the woman searching for the coin and he's the father who welcomed us home. If you've not come home, come home. Please come home. He will welcome you and he will celebrate you.
you're a believer already, at some point we came to our senses and he humbly went home. I just want to encourage you to do two simple things. First of all, take some time today and just thank him. Thank him for searching for you, for finding you, for celebrating you. And then commit to sharing that love with someone else. Easter Sunday's coming. What a great time to invite somebody to come to church so they can hear the message so that they can come home. Would you stand with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us, your grace that's poured out on us. Thank you for Jesus being willing to come to search for us, to find us. Thank you, God. It blows our mind to think that you celebrate us. We love you. We thank you for loving us. God, help us today in the days ahead to present Jesus to others so that they have that opportunity to come home. If there's somebody here today who hasn't taken that step, God, I pray they take that step right now. They just turn to you by faith, ask you to come into their life, forgive their sin. Thank you, God, for the day that that happened for us. We pray as Father in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for being here. We'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday.